The Mountaintop Podcast show notes can be found at www.mountaintoppodcast.com, where you can also subscribe to the newsletter and get a 25-minute call with me for free. Also, you're invited to join the Mountaintop Summit Facebook group. Look forward to seeing you there. Live from the mist-enshrouded mountaintop fortress that is X and Y Communications Headquarters, you're listening to the world-famous Mountaintop Podcast. And now, here's your host, Scott McKay. Hey there, gentlemen. This is Scott McKay coming at you again with another episode of the world-famous Mountaintop Podcast. With me today is a new friend of mine. He is the author of the wildly popular book called The Like Switch, which you can find on Amazon under that name. He is an assistant professor at Western Illinois University and also a former FBI special agent specializing in behavioral analysis and recruiting spies. My guest co-host today is Dr. Jack Schaefer. Jack, welcome, man. Welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I've been uh, hearing about your book. Believe it or not, the first time I ever heard about your book, I was helping a guy with his online dating prospects, and we were looking at a woman's profile who he was interested in meeting, and under the book she had just last read was yours, <laughs> The Like Switch. And uh, it sounded fascinating to me, and I looked it up. It's probably been about a year now. And um, you have a fascinating story. Obviously, you've uh, a former life as an FBI special agent, which has allowed you to learn a lot about human nature uh, how people are and how to read them, right? You're an expert in this stuff. Yeah, actually, I learned a lot of it through formal education and a lot of it through just experience talking with people and observing behavior over the years. I was uh, an investigator and also a special agent. Yeah, well, one of the first things that I noticed in terms of what your book is about is this idea of how to instantly read people and influence how they perceive you. And then you talk about understanding others' behavior and learning what they really think about you. And I think that really captures something that a lot of people wonder about quite a bit and really don't know what to make of. I mean, how do you not only read people, but figure out what it is they think about us? Well, when you specifically when you read people, you can look several techniques. One of them is you can look at their their lips, if their lips are pursed, which is a slight outward movement of the the lips, it means that they're disagreeing with something you just said. In other words, they formed an opinion that's in opposition to what you just said. So you can kind of read somebody's mind by looking at their lips. The other way you can use the lips is if there's a gentle lip biting that also tells you that that person has something to say or wants to say something, but for some reason, they, they're, they're a little reluctant to say it. So you could tease that out of them by saying, ah, under, it looks like you have something to say. And they people generally will respond with what they say. And they always sometimes will make a comment, how did you know that? And it's quite simple. You just read the lips. The other thing is lip compression. That's when you take your lips, you kind of suck them together. That means you really you have something that's – you have something you – you don't want to say in in an extreme manner. So you start to read people just by looking at their lips. And that's kind of interesting. You know, I would agree. It's not often you hear people talk about lips specifically in terms of reading people, but that's where the words come from. So it makes sense that nonverbal cues would originate around the lips. 
another thing that you talk about, like I said, is how to figure out what people really think of you. What are a couple quick secrets to figure that out? Obviously, if they're still talking about you and they seek you out and they want to hang out with you, they probably like you. But in your normal garden variety social situations, what are some other clues? Well, what you want to do is you you, you can't really read people's minds. But what you can do is tease information out of them or make them feel comfortable enough where they're going to reveal that information. One of the techniques you can use is called an empathic statement. An empathic statement is nothing more than you're taking what that person said, how they feel, or their physical status, and you're using parallel language to reflect back how that person feels. And once that person has a sense that you're connecting to them at that personal level, they have a tendency to open up. For example, when I'm at school and I get on the elevator, uh, some, you know, one student in particular was smiling a lot. And I said, I took that smile to mean she was happy. And I said, oh, you're having a good day. And I'm doing nothing but taking that smile she had and reflecting it back to her in words. And this gives the person the feeling that you understand or can empathize with them. And she said, yeah, I passed my test that I've been studying very hard for. And I said, so, all that studying paid off. And she says, yes, I studied real hard, and I'm real happy I'm passing the, the test, and I didn't think I'd be able to do it. So you feel like, you know, you had a tough time, but you overcame it through your study. So all I did in that exchange was to provide her with empathic statements. In other words, I'm just reflecting back and keeping her the center of attention and reflecting back her feelings. And so naturally, the more she engages you and the more she opens up to you, the better she likes you. Yeah. And empathic statements are powerful tools because uh, the other person is the focus of the conversation, the focus of your attention. And it's easy to construct empathic statements. The basic formula is so you, because you want to keep the focus on the other person. Because as soon as you say, I understand how you feel, the other person says, no, you don't. You're not me. You, you don't know how I feel. So what you have to do is keep it reflecting back what they said. So you had a good day. So you're having a bad day. So, you know, you're angry about something. So it's always so you. And that keeps that focus on the other person. That in turn, it brings us to another good point, And that is, if you want people to like you, there's a technique that works 100% of the time. And that technique is, if you want people to like you, you make them feel good about themselves. And if people feel good about themselves, they're going to like you. Because if somebody's around me, and every time they're around me, they feel good about themselves, they're going to want to come back and visit uh, to get that same good feeling again. Well, it's interesting you would say that because it corroborates a lot of my own writing. I mean, years ago, I did an audio uh, with the rather auspicious title of The Engineer's Guide to Being Cooler Than the Sales Guy. And in it, pretty much one of the central themes is cool people, people who are considered cool by others. And in your vernacular, likable people, frankly, are those people who make others feel cool. It's like yes. being a Michael Jordan. You make everybody on the court around you better because you were there, as opposed to someone who would be douchey, if you pardon my language, <laughs> but it's, it is what it is. It's the word for someone who thinks they're cool when they're really not. And that's someone who's drawing attention to themselves and trying to show everybody how cool they are. 
And that kind of person would just make everybody roll their eyes, right? Right. And that's, you know, making empathic statements is an, is an old theory or technique. Carl Rogers came up with it initially, but it works in, in all situations and it gets people to like you almost instantaneously because, you know, people walk away and go like, wow, that, that person was really interested in me as a person and understood what I was thinking and what I was saying. And that makes them feel good about themselves. And in doing that, that person will be predisposed to like you. Yeah, that sounds a lot like something that goes all the way back to Dale Carnegie, even. Yeah, oh yeah. Dale Carnegie and, uh, has a lot of the uh, similar techniques. So it's a, tri- it's a tried and true powerful technique. Well, you actually have a term that you've coined, likability quotient, or LQ. Tell us a little right. bit about that. Well, your likability quotient is how well do people like you? And your likability quotient goes up using empathic statements, using flattery. Uh, and flattery is something that we have to be very careful about because you can't directly flatter people, especially women, because then they, they get really defensive and their shields go up. So in order to do uh, flattery correctly, what you want to do is allow the person to flatter themselves because we rarely miss an opportunity to flatter ourselves. So, you know, in the case of that student on the elevator that did well on the test, you could say, so it takes a good student to pass that test. That student will automatically flatter themselves and goes like, well, I am that student and I did work hard and I did pass the test, but I didn't directly flatter the student. I allowed the student to flatter themselves. Now, when guys are interested in meeting women, one of the things that most dating experts tell men is never go give women compliments immediately. Don't flatter them immediately. Because like you said, it's going to come off kind of like you're some sort of cheesy salesperson who wants something from them. I was just saying, but you can't allow them to flatter themselves. That's what I like about what you're saying is instead of simply throwing all the compliments at them, hoping they'll be impressed, which of course typically backfires, what you're doing is you're relaxing and you're having conversation with the woman. And when she says something that she's proud of, Agree with her, in essence. Basically agree that there's something positive about her. And that kind of lifts all the neediness right out of the conversation, doesn't it? Yes, and and it also makes her feel good about herself. One of the things I've noticed about your writing in general is this, this whole idea of patience as a concept that really helps with social skill and getting to know people and getting them to like you and uh, form alliances with you and agree with you. You talk about being patient in several of the stories in your book. And I think that just absolutely goes against the grain of what most people think. Most people think, okay, if I'm going to meet someone and try to build an alliance with them or make them like me, I need to do this as quickly as possible. I need to get to know them. I need to ask them 20 questions. And you have stories in your book where days, weeks, and months pass by before the sought out rapport is actually built with the person you'd like to build it with. Tell us a little bit more about the importance of patience in building rapport with people. Patience is, is key. And, and what's interesting is when you first meet somebody you like, you, you have a tendency to data dump, to tell that person everything about you, everything you've done, all your accomplishments, and just throw it all out there. But a, a better way to keep a, a relationship alive is reveal yourself little by little. Crumb by crumb, I call that the Hansel and Gretel effect. Just 
tell somebody, oh, I did this and let it go, or I accomplished that, or I'm this type of person. And if you do that over a long period of time, it keeps that novelty in the relationship alive. And the more novelty you have in a relationship, the more newness that you have in the sense of discovery of one another, the more intense and long-term that relationship's going to be. So you don't want to just throw everything out all at once. I mean, we're really tempted to because we really want to impress that person. But to be more effective is just tell them little by little and then keep the focus on them instead of you. Well, intrigue and open loops are proven to keep up interest levels in our fellow human beings amongst each other. That's that's right. proven. Yeah. If a guy, for example, is online and he's writing women and hoping that those women will write him back – a key element is not to give too much away. I mean, the guy who's really full of himself and writes a 3000 word first email to a woman is likely to creep her out and not hear from her. Whereas if he gives her just one little tidbit of interesting information and gives her a call to action that she can easily answer, then it's kind of on. And a lot of guys really just fail to understand that. Yeah. It's, it's because people want to rush relationships and, and good relationships can't be rushed. They have to develop over time where people get to know and trust other people. And trust is, it's not created in a day or two, it's created over time. And mostly by you respecting the other person and paying attention to how they feel and what they think and say. So if you make them the, the center of attention, then they're going to feel more comfortable talking. And that's kind of what you're talking about when you uh, have coined the phrase, the friendship formula, correct? Right. Exactly. You also talk about making great first impressions. And one of the things in your work that fascinates me is this idea that human beings tend to, maybe even without even realizing it, send out friend or foe signals in terms of how our countenances appear, our body language, how we carry ourselves. Tell us a little bit more about how that looks. Well, friend signals, what we do as humans uh, is we constantly are scanning the environment for threats. And some of the threats in the environment are other people. So what we want to do is we want to send out friend signals to let other people know that we're not a threat to them. One of the long-distance friend signals is the eyebrow flash, which is lasts about one sixty-fourth of a second. It's a quick up-and-down movement of the eyebrows. So as you're approaching somebody and somebody's approaching you, you have a tendency to exchange eyebrow flashes. We do this kind of subconsciously, but we're just letting the other person know that we're not a threat to one another. The second thing that people do when they approach one another is the head tilt. So they'll tilt their head slightly to one side or slightly to the other. And that what that head tilt does, it, it exposes our carotid artery. And we're letting that person know, I trust you enough to expose a very vulnerable part of my body. So that's a sign of trust. And you see that in animals, too. If, if you have a, a dog, particularly, and the, the owner comes home, the dog sits there and tilts his head to one side or the other. Or the dog flips over it's on its back to expose its, its belly, which means all the dog is saying is, I'm not a threat. So the, the last thing is the smile. And smiles are interesting because when we smile, we release endorphins. And when we release endorphins, we feel good about ourselves. So when you smile at somebody and they smile back, they're receiving a shot of endorphin, 
which the smile makes other people feel good. And back to the golden rule of friendship, if you want to make friends, make them feel good about themselves. And that's essence, in essence what you're doing. And a lot of people don't realize that they send these friend signals until, you know, I mention it to them and then they'll say, my gosh, I've been eyebrow flashing all day. It's unbelievable. And as far as the head tilt goes, where guys run into a lot of problems, if you're you know, a, a workplace that's stressful and you have to be assertive in the workplace, people, especially guys, keep their heads upright and straight. And But that's a sign of being less friendly. So what happens to these guys is they go to social situations to meet women and their heads are upright and erect. The message they're sending is stand off. I'm 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 going to be aggressive and standoffish. So you have to different environments require different nonverbal signals. Well, several things there. First of all, I love what you're saying about the eyebrow flash for guys who may still be wondering about it. Since this is an audio podcast, it's kind of like the hey, how are you doing? Right at the hey, your eyebrows would go up and down just for a brief moment. So you're not looking like a soy boy or anything when you're doing this. You're not looking like happy the clown it's something that is almost a micro expression maybe a little right and and you know you can see this you can practice seeing these things because when you see somebody in the morning for the first time you go hey what are you how you doing and the other person goes hey how you doing you see that person a second time you don't have that verbal exchange what you have is exchange of eyebrow flashes or guys will stick their chin out they'll jut their chin out and tilt their head backwards like hey how's it going that's just another friend signal that says I'm not a threat. So we're constantly telling each other that we're not a threat to one another. Now, you also mentioned the idea of tilting your head so that your carotid artery is exposed. And that immediately brought to mind two things, the first of which is the handshake. The custom of shaking hands, which is now spread all over the world, is meant to indicate I'm unarmed. I'm making myself vulnerable to you. I come as a friend. And it seems like that's sort of a lot like either exposing your carotid artery by tilting your head or, of course, the wonderful example you mentioned is a dog rolling over on its belly and trusting you to rub its tummy. Also, the other thing that I thought of is when you watch a show like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul and the guys from the cartel are meeting each other and they don't exactly trust each other, they're indicating their lack of trust for each other with completely different body language. In other words, they're kind of looking down. They're protecting their neck. And they're sort of yeah. looking under their eyebrows at you, which is the exact opposite of exposing your neck or lifting your eyebrows. Yeah, and I call that the urban scowl. <laughs> That's because what I was going to say. You have that wonderful name for it, right? When you walk, when, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a dangerous neighborhood. And what you had to do was let the predators in the neighborhood know that you're, you're not going to be easily made prey of. So what you do is you furl your eyebrows, you 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 look under their eyes, you you do all the opposite things. You send out these faux signals. But the interesting thing was I met my wife who lived out in the suburbs. She didn't live in that hostile environment. So when I went out to the suburbs to to meet her and, uh, you know, go on dates, her friends thought I was the meanest person around. I would snap their head off and and uh, yell at them or something because the signals I was sending them was back off, stay away, don't make prey out of me. So when, when my wife mentioned it, I went, oh, yeah, I better change my nonverbals when I go out to see her friends and give them more eyebrow flashes and smiles and head tilts. 
it's the exact opposite of what I like to talk about, which is the importance of being warm with people. Warmth is attractive to people. So if you're doing the urban scowl, as you call it as a guy, or probably the female equivalent would be resting bitch face, what it's going to do is it's going to make people stay away. A lot of women are like, how come guys never come and, and talk to me or ask me out? It's because of the RBF, <laughs> right? So a lot of these guys, you see them with the urban scowl and their online dating photos as if being some sort of tough guy is going to scare women into liking them or something. And really, it's that warmth that's really going to make the difference. Yeah, and, and women have to learn how to make signals too. And there's a, a courtship ritual. If you walk into a bar and you're a guy and you see a girl, you're going to scan the crowd. You're going to m- make uh, momentary contact with the person of interest. And you're going to look at them. Eyebrow, you're going to eyebrow flash and tilt your head, but you're still a distance away. What the, what the woman typically does is she'll lower her head and turn it to the right or to the left. And then seconds later, she'll re-engage eye contact. And that's an RSVP that says, I'm, I'm okay for you to come talk to. But if she doesn't look back, if you don't get the look back, then she's not interested in talking to you. Well, there's a slightly submissive tack she takes also, right? Yeah, well, that's the coyness where she looks right. down in a way. Yeah, so that would be different, obviously, for the guys listening than the guys in the cartel staring each other down. Different body language. Oh, yeah, different body language, different situations completely. One's a social situation. The other one's a, a, a hostile environment. And it's good to be able to know the difference. Or, oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. One of the things that gets guys in trouble is if they're talking to a girl and they have good rapport with that person, the girl will typically lightly touch the guy's arm, forearm, uh, bicep, or knee very slightly with her hand. All that means is, I have good rapport with you. I like you. It's not an invitation to have sex. And a lot of guys see that innocent touching as an invitation to have sex, and, and they become aggressive. And they misinterpret the signs and the nonverbal signals. Well, a lot of guys also have been taught to touch women early and often in hopes of getting them to be sexually attracted to them. What do you think about no. that? No, people don't want their their personal space invaded. <laughs> they don't want to be touched. Uh, Why is this so hard to understand, Jack? How come so many other dating coaches teach what they call kino escalation when to you and I it's pretty obvious that you know if you start pulling women up before they're comfortable with you, it probably won't end well? No, not probably. It won't. <laughs> I'll take probably out of the equation. Because do you want people pawing up into your personal space? I don't <laughs> Hell no, so. I don't. No. Even if she's hot, frankly. Yeah, it's not going to work. I got to tell you, I'm getting a huge kick out of talking to you because you're this FBI guy and you're from the south side of Chicago. And you're not a guy who's any kind of wimp in any way, shape, or form. And I love – having guys like you on this show, because to me, you represent a lot about what a man should be. I mean, you know, you can protect yourself. You could certainly protect a woman, I'm sure. I know you're quick on your feet. I've read a lot about your book and who you are. And uh, interviewing you is kind of like, feels like kind of like interviewing Evil Knievel. I mean, it has that same kind of feel to it, you know. I just feel like, you know, everything is matter of fact. You say what's on your mind. If If someone else doesn't like it, that's their problem. And yet... This is what I want to underscore to every guy who's listening. Even with who the hell you are and your demeanor, 
and especially how you're carrying yourself on this show, go figure, you're likable. And you wrote the book on how to be liked. And you're not coming to us as some kind of, uh, you know, court jester, life of the party, laugh a minute kind of guy. You're just authentic. And that has a lot to do with this whole big picture, doesn't it? Well, it all stems, I think, from my experiences of talking to criminals who you try to get to confess to some crime that'll put them in prison the rest of their life. You can't walk in and be harsh with them. You can't walk in and, and treat them like detectives on TV treat people. You have to walk in. You have to make friends. You have to get them comfortable, build rapport, and then slowly you work towards that trust where he's comfortable talking to you about the evil deed that he's just done. And it takes, it, it takes practice. I mean, they, these things don't come naturally. It takes, some of them come naturally, but most, most of the time it's practice. Empathic statements, allowing people to flatter themselves, putting other people first, that all takes a lot of practice. Just as an aside, how do you manage people's preconceived notions about you once they figure out where your expertise lies. In other words, I could imagine very easily people thinking, man, this guy can just see right through me. He knows exactly what I'm thinking. He's reading every little movement I make. Every little word I say is being analyzed. How do you get people to be comfortable with you and to like you even when they know what you're capable of? That's the question I probably wanted to ask more than any question in this entire darn interview. Here's the way I approach that. I said, you have every right to fear me and be careful of what you say. And if I were you, I would back up very slowly. And that usually breaks the tension. Well, I'm talking... <laughs> I'm talking about a normal social... Like, let, me, let me stop laughing because that's just freaking hilarious. You know who else you remind me of? Is you remind me of, of Mike Ehrmantraut on Breaking Bad. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't read that. I don't look at that show. <laughs> he, but, he wouldn't look at his own show. Let me go ahead and rephrase the question when I'm not laughing. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome, man. You rule. All right, hold on a second. Obviously, that's in an adversarial situation, but let's say you're at a cocktail party and you just meet people and, and they go, oh, man, you're that guy who wrote that like switch book. I know all about you. How would you help normal people in a social situation well, I, I typically say I, I'm not on duty. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of, you know, just total concentration to do these things. I just merely uh, am relaxing now. And am I picking up some things? Yeah, but you're picking up things also. But I'm not, you know, targeting you for any particular reason, unless you lie to me, of course, and then we can have another discussion. But, you know, it's typically I try to use humor. Yeah, I think that probably would have to be the best medicine. When I've coached people who are in the therapy profession, for example, or people who are lawyers or medical doctors, I always remind them that whoever is sitting across the table from them on a date is probably going to be a little intimidated by their profession for many of the same reasons they might be intimidated by yours. And humor and warmth are always the best policy. Absolutely agreed. Well, you, you got to be careful with humor, though. The only kind of humor that I approve of is self-deprecating humor. Because what's funny to you may not be funny to somebody else for whatever reason. Yeah, certainly if you're making fun of them, that wouldn't work. Yeah, and you might even be stepping on a word mine. And word mines are those those words that people have attached a great emotional power to. So when you step on that, 
word or use that word, it, you get this emotional explosion and you wonder, what the heck did I just say? I didn't say anything. But in their minds, it was a, uh, an emotionally packed word. Like, for example, a, a political virtue signal may offend quite literally half of the entire country or something like that, right? You want to make sure you're very mindful of what you're saying because you don't want to trigger anybody. Yeah, and if, and if you make fun of yourself in a light way, who's going to, uh, who's going to complain? Jack made fun of himself. I heard that. <laughs> so what? <laughs> this is actually a nice segue to the next set of questions I wanted to ask you about, which are all fascinating questions to me. You talk about turning up and turning down the intensity of a relationship. Is that kind of like sort of knowing how to throttle your charm, as I'd call it, when the situation calls for it and you don't want this uh, woman, for example, to fall in love with you too quickly? Am I on the right track there? Is it more about, uh, you know, do I want this person to be more pissed off and more agitated or less pissed off and less agitated? Is that what you're talking about there? Yeah, basically, you're talking about the uh, friendship formula and that that is what all relationships are based on. And once you understand there's four elements in that uh, friendship formula, and once you understand the elements, you can increase the intensity or decrease the intensity in the relationship. The first thing that you need in all relationships, in other words, all relationships follow this uh, formula. First thing you need is proximity. You have to be with that person. And if you're with that person and you just exist in the same space and you don't necessarily talk to one another, just that proximity predisposes people to talk, uh, to like you. So you can predispose people to like you just by existing in the same space they do. The second thing is the frequency. You have to frequently be with people. And in, in frequency is not alone enough. So you need duration. So you have to spend time with that person frequently. And duration is if the more time I spend with a person, the more I can influence that person. And the last thing and the most important thing is intensity. And that those are nonverbal cues and verbal cues that either increase or decrease the intensity of a relationship. So if you want to cool off a relationship, be with the person left less often and the duration of the visits are shorter. If you want to increase the intensity, more proximity, more frequency, increase your duration and increase all your nonverbal intensifiers. One of the most powerful intensifiers in a relationship is mutual gaze. When we look at each other, you know, in the eyes, and that's where you get those young people that are in love or wide-eyed and in love, and they stare at one another, and that's mutual gaze. It's a sign of intensity in the relationship. So this, for example, is why you wouldn't want to see a woman more than, say, once a week unless you wanted her to be your girlfriend and feel like she's your exclusive girlfriend. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, if well, you yeah, I am too. I mean, among other examples, right? I mean, it's, it's some people like to grow relationships slower, so you, you're going to have to monitor you know the frequency and proximity and duration and intensity of your relationships you know one one you know there's ways to intensify it if if you want someone to like you it's called misattribution and what happens is if somebody for example is is afraid or they go through a traumatic experience together then they have a tendency to like one another more than somebody they didn't go through that experience with policemen experience it uh, soldiers in combat experience it 
But you, you can experience it in a dating situation by taking somebody to uh, a scary movie. And they, they get that same misattribution. Because if you feel afraid and you share that fear of, you know, the, the scary movie together, that increases your likability. Or you could go bungee jumping or drive down Pikes Peak without brakes in your car or something. I mean, something that's a little scary, you can increase relationships. And if you want to excel, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a good thing, but one way to accelerate a relationship is to talk about more intimate topics immediately. And if the person then shares at the, at the intimate level, that will increase the relationship intensity, and you can actually skip a step in the relationship building process. But that's something that, that could be haphazard at best. Right, right. You know, listening to you talk, I um, was asked recently for good first date ideas that aren't dinner and a movie. And one of the things that just occurred to me was to take a woman to a firing range and shoot guns. Well, yeah. Well, and, and what you have there is that misattribution. You know, yes. the, it's a, the guns are a scary thing, and, and, and that would be one way to do it. And it's a novel thing probably for it's a scary thing and you'll probably get a, a closer relationship faster if you uh, if you go to firing. That's a good idea. Yeah. Well, I like, you know, one example I, I like for first dates is you go to a baseball game. And, and why I like baseball games is you don't have to talk to each other all the time. You can watch the baseball game when you want to talk to the person. You just turn and talk to them. But it's not uncomfortable because you're not expected to. Uh, talk to one another for nine innings. That's an interesting concept because I think conventional wisdom would say you'd want to go somewhere where you're going to interact and talk with each other. But what you're saying is that's different than a dark movie theater where you can't talk to each other because if you want to talk to each other, do it. If you want to stay silent for the next five minutes, there's no pressure. So I think that is actually a very, very intuitive take. Thank you for that. Yeah, so baseball games are always good. Yeah, well, now what if it's not baseball season? Can we go to an NBA game? Well, you can go to any sport. I, I, I suppose so. you can go to any sporting event. It's the same thing. I mean, nobody's – I mean, you sit through a baseball game, and you chat, and you look at the game, you chat, and you don't feel like it. You, you don't have to. There's no expectations. There's no pressure. So it's a very relaxed atmosphere, and you do get to spend time together. The last topic I want to broach with you before we close this off is you have an article you wrote on how to control angry people. And also the title of the last chapter of your book, The Like Switch, is The Perils and Promise of Relationships in a Digital World. Let's talk about the tone on social media these days. If you go searching for political topics on Twitter or Facebook you're going to be convinced very quickly this world is going to hell in a handbasket and we're probably going to end up like Rwanda within 18 months. How do we contribute to improving the tone amongst people online in the digital world, particularly, because I think people have a little more freedom behind that cloak of anonymity on the internet, really to be jerks to each other and to be really intolerant. What's your take on all that? How do we get that back? How do we get some civility back in this country, Jack? The, the problem is humans are very good at reading nonverbal language. In other words, we've been doing this for millennia. We talk to people, and if we're getting too close or too intimate, they'll cringe, and you'll say, 
well, I better stop talking about that topic and change topics. You have less lesser of a tendency to disparage people to their face. So when you're on the internet, we're taking away the very thing that we're very, very good at, and that's reading nonverbal signals. And then we're we're going into a digital world where it's just words without nonverbals. So what people have a tendency to do is to give too much too soon and develop that relationship based on a fantasy because you don't see that person. And if you don't see the person you're talking to, you have a tendency to make an image of that person in your mind that's ideal, not the person, but an ideal flawless person. So the longer you're online interacting with people without seeing them face to face, even Skype will work. The, the more difficult it's going to be to meet them face-to-face because they're not going to meet the expectations that you have built up in your mind about who they are. Well, that's certainly correct, and I agree with you a thousand percent. But I would also say that the opposite is true. If you're on Twitter and you disagree with someone politically, that person is going to build this negative, fatally flawed image of you as this horrible person simply because you disagreed with them. And to make matters worse on Twitter in particular, you've only got 140, well, it's 280 now, right? Still too few. 280 characters to make your entire point. And so what happens is when you make the point you desire in 280 characters per less, an audience that you don't even know is there yet, you don't even know the character of the audience who's going to be reading your tweets, especially if you're responding to someone else's, is going to make assumptions about who you are and fill in literally all the gaps about who you are, what you're about, what your experience is, based on that little tidbit of information you gave out. And in many cases, once the mob mentality sets in, like let's say, for example, you found yourself in the wrong echo chamber, and now you're a horrible person, people will just start piling on. And so I've been reading lately about how psychologists are getting people coming into their office, and the root of their depression is spending too much time on Twitter and Facebook in the wrong neighborhood and arguing, having to defend themselves, and it just creates this massive depression. And that just can't be good for anybody. You no, know? but my solution is very simple. That's why we have delete on the exactly. computer. Turn keyboard. off Twitter, exactly. That's, how, that's why we say defriend somebody. You, you only, you, your goal should be to hang out with people that like you. Do not hang out with the people that don't like you or have no potential of liking you. My philosophy is... Of all the people in the world, 50% of the people are not going to like me just because of who I am, period. And of the 50%, 50% of those 50% won't like me as soon as I open my mouth. And 50% of those 50% aren't going to like me when they spend a little time with me. But there's going to be this, that half a dozen people that you click with, that you get along with, that you enjoy each other's company and you understand one another. Those are the people you should concentrate on your relationships with. I, the last thing I want to do is talk to somebody that doesn't like me or be with somebody that doesn't want to be with me. I don't care if people don't like me. That comes natural with the territory of being human. So concentrate on the people you like. Develop those relationships. It'll be far more rewarding than trying to convince somebody in, in a smoky basement under a, you know, a light bulb in the middle of the night his underwear and his only friend's a cat trying to tell you that you, you're not a good person. Well, it's a waste of time, too, because the only people listening are the two of you. That's, that's correct. So I don't know why people 
focus on and and get disturbed by people who don't like them on the internet. And what you're doing is you're relinquishing your your uh, uh, emotional uh, well, your emotional being because you're allowing that person on the internet to control your emotions. I'm just amazed by how many people online are looking for a fight and and seem to like it. To me, that just seems broken. Yeah, I don't talk to those people. <laughs> yeah, just like I would. Do you think there really are more of them nowadays, and it's getting worse, or do you think it's just that those people now have a microphone? Well, I, I I think it's getting worse because it's that anonymity you're talking about. If it was face to face, people wouldn't do that because I'd look at you and give you the the mati or to stare down and say, "What are you nuts?" And then that <laughs> shuts that person up. But there's no there's no controls. The there's no nonverbal controls that you can and restrictions you can put on other people's behaviors. It reminds me of the seminar I went to on customer service, and I asked, how can you reason with unreasonable people? And the answer was very simple. It was two words. You can't. You can't. You don't. You just let them go. Right. Say adios. Have a nice life. Well, yeah, you have this this article on controlling angry people. Are you saying that you know that's kind of smoke and mirrors and you can't control them? you got to let them just kind of vent and calm down? Or, well, no, or what, what you, is your – To handle angry people – you 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 were talking about earlier people that are unreasonable and they won't move for any reason at all. And that's different than just angry people. If you're angry, I'm going to use an empathic statement to find out, oh, so you're upset about something that happened. And you go, oh, you're darn right I was upset. And then you vent. And then what you want to do is another empathic statement to say, oh, you're upset because I offended you in some way and made you look bad in front of your friends. And you say, yeah, that's it. And finally, when you get done venting, then you, you, you feel this relief, like your shoulders come down, you take a deep breath, and you're kind of out of energy. You've spent it all. And that's when you put in something called the presumptive statement. And a presumptive statement is a course of action you want someone to take, and they have a very difficult time refusing that course of action. And in this case, we were just talking about my presumptive statement would be, so I won't talk to you in public about something that you consider private that would uh, make you look bad in public. I'll address you in the future just between you and me over a beer or something. What's the other person going to say? No, I want you to do it in public. They can't. So they have to say, yeah, okay. And again, something that's very difficult to do on Twitter. <laughs> so it's a flawed platform by design. Because we're, we're taking out of our environment of, of what we do well. So internet relationships can work, but you have to go face-to-face -face as soon as possible in either Skype or a safe environment somewhere, in a public environment. You, you have to go face-to-face -face because that's when we can start reading people because that's what we're good at, reading those nonverbals. I remember back when I was in IT, I was the rep for a company that uh, was doing multi-million dollar projects for public sector customers. And let's just throw it on the table. Our engineering team had not caught up with the amount of business we had just procured. <laughs> so we were messing up installs and screwing up left and right. And of course, who did they come to to complain? That was me, right? Right. And I had a lot of angry customers who I needed to deal with. And I found that my number one tactic for getting them to calm down was to care more about the screw up and be angrier about the screw-up than even they were. Well, that, that brings into, into focus common ground. You both shared something in common at the same time. 
And once right. you share something with somebody, then that predisposes that person to like you. And it worked every time. Someone yeah. would call me and they'd go, all right, McKay, your engineer was supposed to be here at nine o'clock in the morning and it's now the crack of lunch and this guy hasn't even apparently woken up yet. What are you going to do about it? And I go, you got to be kidding me. It's almost, it's 1138 in the morning. That guy was supposed to be there at nine o'clock and he hasn't shown up yet. I mean, you've paid millions of dollars for this project. Who the hell does he think he is? I'm going to get on the blower right now. I'm going to fix this. And God, it better not ever happen again. Because if I get another call from you about this sort of thing, I'm probably going to blow my top. And the guy would go, yeah. Yeah, that's what I want to hear. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, number one, well, yeah. you did two things, basically. You, you've established common ground. Yeah. And basically what you said was an empathic statement. You were reflecting back to your customer what your customer felt. And and once he you reflected back to him, he goes like, oh, my message got through. It's kind of the opposite of giving excuses and being defensive. That'll just piss them off even more. Yeah, it's what easier. they want is action. Yeah, and that's what you should say. You should say, I, you know, you're upset. Of course, I can tell you're upset because this is screwing up your 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 world and your your company's you know time schedule. And I'm a I'm gonna get right on this thing and fix it. Well, speaking of screwing up our company's time schedule and your company's time schedule, our time is drawing to a close here. I want to respect your time. And I also want to send these guys to your book before we close this podcast because it's extra special. Guys, you're going to love this book. Um, the cover is particularly interesting. It's bright red. And you can go ahead and see what the book's about, a little more detail about it. And uh, see what the cover looks like by going to Amazon. And I'm just going to set you up with a special link. Go to www.mountaintoppodcast.com, front slash like, L-I-K-E. Let's make it that easy. And you'll be able to snap up your copy of Jack's best-selling book. Uh, it's wildly popular. A lot of people are reading it. And Jack, man, it's a pleasure to know you, man. I'm really, really glad we had this talk. We could talk probably for the next two hours because it's such a deep and fascinating subject. But I certainly appreciate your time. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. And guys, if you haven't gotten in on my newsletter yet, what I want you to do is go to www.mountaintoppodcast.com and sign up. I'll give you free actionable information every day. Also, here's something new for you. I am now writing custom crafted versions of my infamous projection profile method for you guys who are struggling a little bit online and want women to read your profiles and not just say, well, you know what? You seem nice, but we're not a match. Or they just ignore you completely. Instead of being ignored, I want women to be diving on their keyboards, writing you saying, I have got to meet you. I'm incredibly intrigued. There's no way in hell I cannot not meet you. That's what the projection profile does for you. I've come to the conclusion that you guys could really benefit from this. And so I'm now providing that service for you. Go to mountaintoppodcast.com front slash PP projection profile PP. And um, let me write it for you. Let me do the heavy lifting for you. Outsource that to me and let's get some women into your inbox and into your life. And until I talk to you again on the next episode, this is Scott McKay from X and Y Communications. Be good out there. The Mountaintop Podcast is copyright 2016 by X and Y Communications. All rights reserved worldwide. Be sure to visit www.mountaintoppodcast.com for show notes. And while you're there, sign up for the X and Y Communications newsletter. This is Ed Roy Odom speaking for the Mountaintop Podcast. Podcast.